Thank you so much, Ariel and worship team. Good morning. May the force be with you, or may peace. <laughs> hey, let's start with a, a question this morning. Have you ever received something, a gift perhaps, that was when you actually unwrapped it and unfolded it, it was way more than you expected or imagined? Uh, I had a, a pastor friend, I'll, I'll change his name, we'll call him Pastor Josh, and um, he was sharing a story from last year that was really awesome. It's not Josh here, I really changed his name. He's actually an RCA pastor in the Midwest, and uh, he and his wife had gone to a prophetic conference, and he was making some shifts to the church that he was leading. Somewhat similar to some of the shifts that we're going through um, as a congregation. He's leading them in a five-fold ministry. What would it look like to see a five-fold ministry in this place, an apostolic ministry, prophetic ministry, and so forth? Also uh, trying to embrace more of the person and work of the Holy Spirit for the congregation. So it was a time of transition in the church, and he and his wife went to this conference just for encouragement, and they had someone who prayed a prophetic word over them. And essentially the prophetic word was, God has your back. God is behind you. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep, um, keep going in the direction that you uh, are going. And he said, and he processed it with this phrase is, um, I don't think this was part of the prophetic word, but this is what he's telling the story, that, that God said, he's going to back my play. I'm like, oh, that's kind of sweet. I'm going to start praying that, back my play. And so um, they had never met budget for the first uh, six years that my pastor friend had been there. And uh, kind of insecure about what the shifts and whether they'd meet budget. January 2016, they ended the year 45,000 above budget. They had, yeah, it was awesome. He was like, God backed my play. Then in January of 2017, this year, he got a call from someone who is not a member of the church he was a wealthy individual and wanted to have lunch with him. So he brought him out to lunch and, uh, and they were interacting about the church and the ministry and the individual said, I'd like to give you a financial blessing in the work of the church. And he was like, you know, thank you so much and awesome. So left lunch, he uh, um, went back that when the gift finally came through at a later time, he wrestled with, do I, do I pray for a significant amount if I, it's too low? And he just kind of finally settled on, boy, if it was like 25,000, that would be such an awesome, God, you've already backed my play. This is all icing on the cake. I, thank you so much for this. So they opened it up, and it was a, a financial gift of $1.5 million for the church. Isn't that awesome? Yes. So one to take from that story, if you'd ever like to invite me out to lunch, <laughs> I am game. But it reminded me of the question that we're going to look at today. Uh, the question that Jesus asked in a crucial moment of his ministry. And that question is simply this. Do you understand 
what I've done for you. Do you understand what I've done for you? It's in, found in the Gospel of John, chapter 13. If you would turn with me there. And um, th this question does have an immediate context where he, what he does, it's the classic foot washing, which we're going to read about in just a moment. Uh, but I think it has a greater context. And I'd like you to ask yourself, do I really get it? Do I get the depth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do I get that what he's done, what we just celebrated in Easter and Good Friday, his death on the cross, his resurrection into new life, the giving of the Holy Spirit, do I get that this gospel has implications for every area of my life? I have a sense as I've been praying for our time together that for many of us, we get the gospel in part. We get the gospel um, at least to important certain degrees, but the Lord has so much more for us. Do we really understand all that he's done for us? So let's read uh, John chapter 13, starting at the first verse. This is a crucial time in the ministry of Jesus. In fact, he's just somewhat, you can read in the chapter previous, he's rejected by the religious leaders, the Jews of his day. And now he's turning his face towards the cross, towards resurrection. It's coming, and actually the rest of the book, the rest of the gospel of John he is now focused on this, what some would call this messianic community, this new community that the cross and resurrection is going to form. And he needs to prepare them not only to endure cross and resurrection, but also to be this new community, this new messianic community, and live the new life post-resurrection, after that. And the first thing he does is important. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew, pay attention to all that Jesus knew for what he was about to do. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. He knew it. He knew the cross. He knew the sacrifice. He knew the resurrection. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Isn't that beautiful? Gorgeous. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew this. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was turning, returning to God. So in other words, Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew where he was from. Jesus knew the source of power and authority in this world. And Jesus knew that the Father, the source of that power, he had been endowed with. He had given Jesus all of this power and authority. Jesus knew it from beginning to end. 
And here's the interesting context of the passage is what does he do with that power and authority? Especially with his betrayer, the one that had traveled with him and was going to turn his back, turn him over to the, the, the religious leaders. What would he do to him? He's sitting right there at the table with him. Let's see what he does. So, verse 4. He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Just imagine that. Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. All power and authority has been given to him. And he, he takes off his outer clothes. Just probably had a wrap here. Just takes a simple towel. And he gets a bowl of water. And what does he do with that? After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The very same towel. He doesn't get another towel. That very same, he'd have to pull it from around his waist to dry their feet. Verse six, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, you're going to wash my feet. You are king, you are Messiah. That makes no sense. Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Don't you love Peter? He's always clueless, but he has zeal, right? He goes, that, that counts for something, right? Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you will have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said, not everyone was clean. Good thing that John puts that in there because there is interesting questions about this dialogue between Jesus and Peter. Are they having this dialogue because Jesus really wants this final lesson about body odor? Did you notice not everyone has taken a bath? So is this dialogue happening because someone really has some bad B.O.? It wasn't Peter. He had been washed. But one of the other apostles, I think it was Judas, had really bad B.O. Is that the context? Of course it's not. What's Jesus communicating here with this language of if you've had a bath and you've not had a bath and dirty feet and all of these things? What he's saying that the physical body, as we talked about in the baptism, the physical body, there's a dirtiness, a smelliness. You and I need to take baths. Same thing is true for your soul. That you and I especially without Christ, we have a sin-saturated soul. 
We're born into this brokenness and this sin. Do you notice the line that Jesus said? Unless I wash you, you have no part in me. What did he mean by that? What he's saying is because of your sin-saturated soul, you must receive, you must acknowledge that sin-saturated soul and receive me as the forgiver, just like Vix did that right here. That we have to invite Christ, we have to acknowledge that we are born, we struggle, we have a poverty of soul, that our soul is dirty and it needs the cleansing and the washing of the blood of Jesus Christ. Unless we do that, we can have no part in Jesus Christ. Some of us this morning have never done that. To acknowledge the poverty of spirit and ask Jesus Christ to wash and cleanse us from our sin. Now Jesus also makes another uh, statement that's interesting that was uh, attracting my attention. He said this, the those who have had a bath, is he talking about a physical bath? No, what's he talking about? Ask Jesus Christ into the heart, a cleansing of the soul. Those of you who have received me, who have had a bath, only need to wash their feet. So if we carry that analogy along, for those of us who have had our souls cleansed by the Lord Jesus Christ, there are time to time when we still need to wash our feet. We have been forgiven, but there's a value. We need this value as we live life in God's kingdom. As we continue to walk, we need to walk in a spirit of humble repentance. To walk in this idea that sin, even though I've been forgiven, baptized, filled with the spirit, that I still have a propensity to sin. I can still stumble. My feet still get dirty as I walk in this broken world. The Eastern Orthodox Christian tradition, we're not as familiar with the Eastern Orthodox. In fact, they um, have their roots as, as far back as the Catholic Church. In fact, some have said that's in church history, the first kind of split. It wasn't a dramatic split, but it was a kind of a separation of 1000 AD. And so you had Eastern Orthodox Christians that were growing up in the faith, but with their own traditions, their own ways of living out the Christian faith. We're far more familiar with, with Catholic and Protestant traditions than we are Eastern Orthodox. One of their dis, uh, disciplines their traditions, I thought was particularly poignant for this passage of scripture. And that tradition is called the Jesus Prayer. It's the simple prayer, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. In their tradition, many of them pray that and repeat that several times. Lord Jesus, Son of God, 
Have mercy on me, a sinner. It's dated back to a story in, um, that Jesus tells about two guys who go to the temple and pray. One is kind of on the top of the social rung. He's a religious leader. He's a Pharisee. He goes to the temple and prays. And then the other guy, he's on the opposite end. He's on the bottom rung of society. He's a tax collector. No one likes tax collectors, right? And Jesus says, both guys go to pray. And the religious leader, the Pharisee, he prays like this. Oh, God, thank you. I am not like these other people because they are messed up. Woo! So I'm paraphrasing just a bit. But Jesus does say, he goes to the temple and says, thank you, I'm not like the evildoer. I'm not like the adulterer. I'm not like the thief. I'm not like that tax collector. Jesus said that. I, I just imagine his apostles got the humor that they'd be laughing. He says, thank you, God, that I am religious. I tithe and I give a tenth of everything. The tax collector, he didn't, pray like that. Jesus says, but the tax collector, Luke 18, 13, and 14, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast. And he simply prayed, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Who prayed well? Jesus answers that. He says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the religious leader, went home justified before God. You see, Jesus was pressing into not necessarily the particular words of a prayer, but he was pressing into the attitude of the heart, an attitude of the soul. A beatitude, in fact, reminded me of the first beatitude that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the, who knows this? Blessed are the very first one, poor in spirit because I'm going to give you a little bit of something. Blessed are the poor in spirit for yours is the kingdom of heaven. So that's kind of important, right? Why would Jesus link blessed are the poor in spirit with the kingdom of heaven? He's saying this is the posture. This, this carrying around this idea that I am impoverished. That's the one. That's the one that gets the kingdom of heaven. The one that recognizes that without God, we are undone. Without God, we can do nothing. That we need him because of our sin-saturated soul. And even after we become Christians, even after we've, we're washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, there's still that value in walking in that spirit of repentance that spiritual poverty that says, I need you, Father. Father, have mercy on me, a sinner. Here's a crucial difference. We don't identify ourselves with our sin. 
We don't understand who we are based on what we've done or not done or failed to do or the sin that we've committed. That's not the point. We don't don't want to identify our lives. However, we do want to carry with us the realization that we have a propensity to sin. As we walk in this world, the things like insecurities and fear and judgmentalism, those things like uh, self-righteousness and a selfishness, some have called it the old Adam still clings. We are new in Christ, but the, the old Eve, the old way of living That's why at different times, the apostles like Peter would say, stop living in the old way, but embrace the new. Eastern Orthodox Christians use that simple prayer, and they would repeat that prayer. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. A sinner. They, in fact, if you do some reading, I've been doing some reading in a beautiful way. Many of them would say that when the Apostle Paul says, "Pray without ceasing," how do you do that and live a life, right? But we repeat that prayer enough in our soul that it's this flow that's happening in our soul. Another thing that they do is they repeat and they try and center in on the powerful name of Jesus and center in on his mercy, his mercy that continues to flow every moment from the throne room of God if we would just drink. I have a good friend who is not an Eastern Orthodox uh, Christian However, he has found great peace in this prayer, the Jesus prayer. He shares a time in his life when he was dealing with huge amounts of anxiety. Uh, Just kind of this, he describes it as this all-encompassing fear that was tempting. He felt like he was just going to fall apart with all this fear and anxiety. Maybe some of us can relate to those times in life. And he was seeing a Christian counselor, and the Christian counselor simply had him do this simple spiritual discipline. He'd sit in a chair, have him put his hands on his knees, and then uh, the Christian counselor found a value in him doing his eyes back and forth about 30 times. I think there's a, uh, my friend said, a physical exhaustion helping him to push away the anxiety. And then he would pray, Precious Jesus, have mercy on my soul. Precious Jesus, have mercy on my soul. Precious Jesus, have mercy on my soul. And you'd say sometimes it would take a few minutes. Sometimes it would take longer but the peace of God that transcends understanding would fill his soul and heart. And all that anxiety for that moment would be pushed away. And the presence that we just sang about, that we talked about last week, that that presence would rest on his soul. 
And he said it wasn't just the activity. The activity was important. But it was also just pressing into the truth that Jesus has come to bring the mercy of God. And it flows every moment from the throne room of God. Maybe that prayer, whatever form that is, precious Jesus, have mercy on my soul, is for you this morning. You know, I use that. I use that prayer in the mornings. When I, when I get up in the morning, this morning, I didn't want to preach to you with dirty feet. So I pray that prayer. That I, I, I want to take advantage to use the mercy, the grace that is new every morning, Scripture says. New every morning. Now let's read the question. Verse 12 is where we find our question. And that is, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. And then he asked them, do you understand what I have done for you. Do you understand what I have done for you? And we're going to talk about the immediate context of that question in just a moment. But before we do, before he's saying, do you understand what this fush washing experience has had? Can we think of that question in that broader sense? Because I do believe he's saying, do you understand the depth and the mystery of the gospel that has been revealed. Friends, we understand a crucial part of the gospel that when we die, and we die in Christ, we gain salvation. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. That is central to the gospel, that when we die in Christ, we gain salvation. We understand life after death, but do we understand life before death? Can I say that again? I don't know if I can say that again. We understand, many of us, we understand life after death, but what we don't understand is the life before death. Does that make sense? That yes, central to the gospel is that we gain eternal life and so when we die or Jesus comes back, we give to live eternally with him. Hallelujah, praise God. Yes, central to the gospel. But do we get the idea that eternal life begins now? That Jesus came to give us a life, not just in eternity, but eternal life now, kingdom life now. This is what I'm talking to you just about every week. This is the, uh, the picture that I got this morning was of this banquet table and, and uh, maybe it's because of abundance that I, I was thinking of Thanksgiving, right? Think of that Thanksgiving meal that you have and you've got the turkey and you got the stuffing and you got the green beans and you got the pumpkin, all those kind of things, right? The yams, I never touch those, gross. But you've got that stuff on the table, right? 
And that table of that represents the abundant life that Jesus died for you to live in the here and now. How come you're just eating the green beans? How come you're not digging into the good stuff, the gravy and the mashed potatoes and the turkey? So many of us are just eating the vegetable and he's got this spread. Jesus said, I've come to give you life and to give it in what? Abundance, yes. Abundance. How come you're just sticking with the yams? So what's that abundant? Just a few things in the abundant life. Do you realize that how much a sin-saturated soul affects how people live? I see it every day. I listen to it on the news. I read it in the newspaper. This, that sin affects how we relate to one another. The sin affects how we view ourselves. The sin affects our marriages and our work, workplace, our broken hearts and our broken lives and our broken relationships and fellowship with God. That is our main issue. That is our main struggle. And Jesus said, got it, done, enough, removed. That sin issue not only affects our entire life, every area, it is the barrier between us and our heavenly father. And Jesus says, done, taken care of, got it. Would you live, stop living in a way that the old sin, the old patterns of thinking and living are still clinging to your life. Those old sins, those old fears, those old anxieties, that old breaking way. Don't you know that Jesus came to clean all of that up and you are set free from that? That's the mashed potatoes, right? Go for the mashed potatoes. That's in part, the gospel, the depth of the gospel. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on in the rest of Romans to talk about a life that is in the spirit of God as opposed to a life that is in the flesh that he's saying there's no condemnation. You've been set free from that life. How come we're still living with condemnation? How come we're still living in bondage? How come we're still living the sin-saturated life with the same insecurities and fears and angst and unforgiveness and judgment and selfishness and lack of passion? That's not the life that Jesus died for you and I to live. Can we let it go? Another aspect that I think perhaps we only get in part and not fully within the gospel is that we get true fellowship and communion, not just with one another, but with who? The living God.
He's your father. Jesus is your good shepherd. Someday in eternity? Yes. Hallelujah. Right now? Right now. We get to hear his voice in our lives. We get to throw our, our difficulties, our anxieties, our struggles before him. It's all through Actually, the Old and the New Testament is that God created us to be in fellowship with him. And now, especially because of the cross of Jesus Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit, we get to walk with him, not just with us, but in us. The Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 6.16, says this, For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will live with them. I will walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Yet many of us, we continue to live the same lonely lives. We continue to live lives vacant of his voice. We're not tasting the goodness of his presence. Jesus died, he, he tore the curtain. You were created for that. That's the longing in there. That, that's the drinking of these streams of living water. But some of us are still so parched. And he's saying, it's right there. We, it, it's on the table before you. It's the, uh, the grape juice and the 7-Up. Do any of you do that for Thanksgiving? Yes? It's right there. But we remain parched for his presence. One last thing, the depth of the gospel. Do we know the past? Do we know the present? Do we know the future? We do know the future. We know how it all ends. We know how it all ends for us as individual men and women. We know how it all ends for the entire world. Jesus says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. That's the beautiful part of funerals that I do is that I get to proclaim the promise of Jesus that we know that this is not all there is, that there is life after death, that we know that God is providentially over this world and our lives, and no matter what we face, he's got us. He's got us. And even if we lose our lives, as of course that's why we're at the funeral, that there's an eternity with God, and yet, friends, when we look around this broken world and we read the headlines about ISIS and terrorism, North Korea, China, economy, racism, all of that, should we be concerned about all those things? Of course. Should we be praying for those things, believing that God has an agenda of the restoration of all things? Absolutely we should be. 
And yet for many of us, our anxiety and fear levels are just as high as our non-Christian neighbors. We're wrapped up in just as much fear as those who don't know Christ. There's a depth of the gospel where when we believe it, it calms our fears and releases our anxieties. And we get to partake of this different kind of meal, this different kind of life, this abundant meal, this abundant life. Do we really understand all that Jesus has done for us. Then let's go to the immediate context. Let's read the rest of the story after verse 12 into 13. Jesus said, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them pretty straightforward example. Barely have to unpack that because it's very clear Jesus is modeling the nature of his words and his work. And the nature of his words and work is this empowered humility. Think of that juxtaposition that we began chapter 13 with. He was saying he knew. He knew where he was from. He knew who he was. He knew that all power and authority had been given to him. So what does he do with that? We just read it. Takes off his clothes, his outer clothing. He does the most menial task in his culture, a task that was often left for non-Jewish slaves in the household. The person on the lowest rung of the totem pole, he says, I'll do it. And for every generation since that moment, Christians have realized that we need to lead and we need to serve in a far different way than the world does. That Jesus says, if you do that, if you serve like me, if you lead like me, if you handle authority and power like me, you will be blessed. Jesus says often, he's reiterating this kingdom life principle, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and you ain't gonna like it when I humble you. It's a paraphrase on me, all right? For all those who exalt themselves, well, then I'll do the work of humbling you and you ain't gonna like it. And those who humble themselves will be exalted, and you're going to like that a lot. 
If you do the work and follow my example and your lives, your words, your actions, your work, follow the example of Jesus, you will be exalted. Again, the illustration of what I would say is perhaps the least understood beatitude that Jesus has. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Was Jesus meek? Absolutely. Does that mean he had no power and authority? No. Come on. No. Let me ask it again. Does that mean Jesus had no power and authority? We just read it, right? That was it. No cup of coffee for anyone. We just read it. So obviously, if he was meek and he had all the power and authority, what does meek mean? Does God want to give you power and authority? Yes, he does. But he wants you to wheel and to use and to live that power and authority in what some have called a gentle authority, a, a, a controlled authority. Uh, not a power and authority where you're gaining for yourself and you're exalting yourself a power and authority that is joining the Lord in the restoration of all things, of serving, of loving in this spirit, this contrite heart, and this humble love. I'll leave you with this story. It's, some of you might recognize the name Mort Kondrak. He was a, uh, is um, a, an American political commentator and journalist. For a long time, don't believe he is now, he was the executive editor of a nonpartisan newspaper, Roll Call. <clears throat> and he tells this very powerful story of his wife, Millie, who eventually uh, contracted Parkinson's disease. And... Um, they had given her medicine, and they, she had a, a tremor, I think, in the, in the pinky and the foot. They were unsure, and they had given her some medicine, um, and Mort was at work, and she realized that the medicine was Parkinson's disease medicine, and she called Mort, and he was sharing this in an interview, and the panic in her voice was greater than he'd ever heard before. She says, get home right away. And he rushes home and she says, it can't be Parkinson's disease. It can't, I know it. I'm gonna lose my power of speech, my ability to communicate. And then she also said, and you will leave me. At the time, Mort didn't realize this. He did later that 50% of men, husbands, that when their wives contract some um, disease, um, debilitating disease, there's the word, that 50% of those men leave. It's a horrible statistic, isn't it? Women are far more righteous and holy. They, they stay there. And he, it took him a while to convince his wife that he would never leave. And then he shared in this interview, it was a uh, interview where he was talking about, she's since passed away, but he was talking into how he has been part of the 50% that stayed and how he's used his faith to sustain him 
He says, you just ask God's help every day. I don't know if he prayed the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy, mercy on me. Or if he simply just said help, either prayer is fine. But he said, he goes on, I couldn't do this without God's help. I pray for help and strength and I pray for Millie's deliverance all the time. I simply could not do this without feeling that I was doing God's work in some small way. And he says, I've asked God innumerable times, you know, so what is my purpose here on earth? Hoping that he will add a new and grandiose dimension to this, and he never does. The message always comes back the same. Your job here is to take care of Millie. Take care of Millie. This political commentator, well known in this humble service, honoring God in the small details. What's on the table before you that you've never reached for? What's right there that's, that's part of the, the provision of Jesus for you, that's part of this abundant life that he wants you to take hold of, this life that he died and was resurrected so that you might live this life. What is there that maybe you've had on your plate at one time and partook, but... It's all done and, and you've never taken more. There's more. There's more. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on us, sinners. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on us, sinners. Precious Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on my soul. Thank you, Jesus, that you have given us this incredible, beautiful example of life, of service, of leadership. Holy Spirit, wherever we are only seeing in part, wherever we're missing this abundant life that you have for us in the here and now, Would you open our eyes and teach us to take hold of all that you have for us? In your precious name we pray, amen. Can we stand together?
and respond in worship of our Lord and Savior. sacrifice I lay down 
would you go and would you let go of everything that entangles? Any fear, any anxiousness, any sin that is still has power in your soul, let it go. It's the old way of living. And would you take hold, as the Apostle Paul says, of the grace of God? Would you take hold of the life he has for you? Worship team is going to continue to uh, worship. We have some folks that would love to pray for you. If there's something... There's something on the table that you've never taken hold of and they would love to pray and join you in that. We also have bowls of water with the Jesus prayer. If you want to pray that and receive that from the Lord, do that. Would you go in the peace of Jesus Christ that transcends all understanding in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.